So, the seminar talk tonight, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to be speaking about, and then I read a letter Andrew had written, he said it's about genetics, so here, here we go. So, this may strike you as being very scientific, and I don't want it to be. What I actually want to do is perhaps give you a little bit of some science, but what I'd like it to do is to actually raise questions that perhaps we don't deal with tonight, but that you take away with us. Now, genetics is often quite scary, and people think, hmm, awfully complicated. Actually, it's not that, because you probably haven't seen any of these in your garden. And you know that genetically, that's improbable. A baboon crossed with a robin is not that common. You know genetically, it doesn't happen. So I want to reassure you at the beginning of this evening, actually, this isn't rocket science. It's just a bit of genetics. Okay, so... Why bother? Well, I guess there's an issue that says everything is deterministic. It's all genetic. Everything's pre-decided, predetermined. Or perhaps there's that view that I'm simply an ape in clothes, which is what my wife thinks. Or, but it also raises the question of how important are human relationships? And that's actually a key issue facing Christians in society, facing society as a whole. How important are human relationships and true, honest, open human relationships? That takes us on to rights and responsibilities. And underpinning this, I do want us to think about what is it to be salt and light in practice? So I'm not going to give you a formula because I didn't last time, but I want hopefully to raise some questions. So there are three propositions I'd like us to think about. The first, being human is being in God's image. And I think actually to understand this and the sense for Christians to really own this makes a huge difference to how we do what we do when we go out into the world to do things in the name of God. So let's start with that. So what the purpose of tonight isn't just to reassure you, it's not about comprehensive science because I don't know enough to make it comprehensive, but we will do a little bit. It's not about comprehensive ethics and it's most definitely not uh, theology in any shape or form. So what is it to be human? Well, we're all familiar with this concept of DNA. Does that define me? Does it define you as a unique individual human? And if I am more than that, because all of the animal and plant kingdoms got DNA, if I am more than that, what is it that makes me more than simply an organism defined by my DNA? So here's the science bit, because you're worth it. How is DNA the code of life? Well, let's look at this, because it's an amazing story. You basically have an alphabet. There only are four letters. There are lots of words, but actually limited because every word has three letters. Sentences are stringing those words together, and that's what we call genes, from which genetic comes. And when you string the sentences together, you make chapters. That's called a chromosome. And when you put the chromosomes together, you tell a story, and that's called you and me, or any living thing. So actually, the story of genetics is pretty simple. A limited number of words making sentences, making chapters, making a story that's you or me. And of course, grammar is all important. And that's one of the bits that's really important to grasp, because if it was all down to the sentences, the genes, then actually we would all be entirely predictable. It's not, because the grammar is different. The accent changes. And that is important. 
So, for example, we don't all have the same identical DNA, but we do have the same genes. We do have the same sentences. So there's something in common with all of us, but it's not entirely in common. And sometimes even tiny little changes mean a lot, even when the change seems rather small. The effect of the next bit is somewhat spoiled because you're missing the sentence underneath. But, for example, David, full stop, this year has been very difficult. Or, David, no full stop, David, this year has been very difficult. One full stop makes a huge difference. And actually, that's important because in genetics, that's exactly what happens. You can have almost identical features with somebody or something else, but that one full stop, David, this year has been very difficult, or David this year has been very difficult, actually makes a huge difference. So that's the key. So while the language is pretty simple and straightforward, actually the nuances of punctuation and accent and grammar are all important. So Richard Dawkins, many will be familiar with, who made a huge success of his book, The Selfish Gene. Genes do anything in order to survive. And that's a huge underpinning assumption in much of society. What happens, happens because it's the way it is, because that's the way people are programmed to be. That's the assumption out there. It simply happens because genes... These sentences are basically there to preserve their own existence. So how true is that? Well, if you look at the case of a virus, actually there's an element that seems to be fairly true. Because a virus basically infects something else, be it you and you get a runny nose, or it affects a plant cell, or a fish, or anything, or a bacteria. But basically a virus exists to reproduce. It's very difficult to see what other purpose or function it would have. So actually on that basis, Dawkins has got it spot on. If however you look at a termite, it's slightly more complex. However, they all seem to be there to preserve their mother, the queen, and actually there's this intense activity around the queen in order that her genes may be preserved. When you get to a wolf, it's slightly more uh, complex still. Yes, there's a hierarchy, but it's not just about the genes of one individual, it's about other individuals taking their place in a pecking order and those genes being passed on. So as you become more complex in society, there are more subtleties and nuances coming in. And of course, the church is the model that does not always uh, reflect the altruism that we would like it to be. So in some ways, the church should be that model of altruism reaching out, but doesn't often make it. However, the Bible says, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, which is precisely what Jesus did. So when we're talking about genes and genetics and determination, we also have to put side by side that God revealed himself to man. You can't explain God through genetics. You can't explain our behavior, our purpose, our entire lifestyle simply by what we're made of. We have to actually realize that God steps into history and as a man gave his life and said that we may lay down our lives for others. So if you start with DNA, you've got a lot of genes, a lot of sentences. You've got a lot of stuff in between 
And it's, it's not genes and sentences and stuff, but it's like brackets and pluses and minuses and semicolons. You've got a lot of things that make sense, and then you've got a variety of other bits and bobs that kick around that make us what we are. Okay, it's complicated. You don't need to know it. But for every one gene that you have, and you've got 24,000 of them, you've got 100 times that living on your skin, living in your gut, living up your nose, living in your ears, and that's because we are colonized by bacteria. So for every one gene you have, you are hosting a guest audience of a hundred different genes from bacteria, which means that you've got almost a quarter of a million genes when you walk out the street, and you're shedding them all the time. Every time you blew your nose, you're shedding genes. That's interesting, if you're into that sort of thing. But it's interesting because actually, if we didn't have that microbiome, as it's called, we wouldn't be alive. Our nutrition depends on the bugs that we have in our gut. That may not be a great place for them to be. They may not have a very cheerful outlook on life. But without them, we wouldn't be. So you ask the question, if we were just those 24,000 genes, we would be human, but rather short-lived. We need that extra host of bacteria within us, on us, around us. We need them to actually be alive as human beings. We depend on them. Which kind of begs the question, are we human or are we human plus? And you'll never blow your nose in the same way ever again. <laughs> but it's an interesting question. One thing, and we won't go into it, is that genes can go wrong. So you can inherit a gene that may be associated with a disease. A gene can go wrong and eventually lead to cancer. You may have a gene that has a particular predisposition to some sort of ailment. So that's the basic genetic bit. Okay, so that raises the question, are we unique? And it's almost apparent from what I've said that actually because we have so many genes, so many in common with other things, have such a huge excess number of genes from the bacteria that happily live upon us, that it's not a very clever way to define ourselves simply on the basis of our genes. And of course the psalmist knew that and he said, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I knew that full well. And I think sometimes Christianity has approached science as a kind of an enemy, like science is out there to prove Christianity wrong. And it couldn't be further from the truth. They are completely on different planes. Science might go some way to explaining some of what makes us who we are and makes the world the way it is. But it's so far short because science doesn't even begin to say there's a God who knows us, who made us fearfully, who fearfully and wonderfully made. So are we unique? The answer has to be yes. But it's not because science is wrong or because science proves it. It's because God reveals himself and says that's the way it is. And that's so important, I think, as Christians, that we actually have to be confident that, yes, we can explain it on an organic, chemical, genetic level, but actually when God steps into time and when God sends to us, he does that because he's God. 
not because we can explain them. So, this is Andrew in his younger years. <laughs> well, in fairness, not so younger. <laughs> it, isn't, it isn't actually Andrew at all. It was Jane when I first met her. But, this, is a chi- this is a chimpanzee, and we are more than 95% genetically identical to a chimpanzee. Now, many people will use that for evidence of saying, well, obviously, the close relatives, there's a lot of similarities, so how could we be unique? And actually, if you take that organic genetic approach, that's very persuasive. But if you then extend that, and you've got, if you see over here, this is supposed to be the evolutionary tree, there's a little yellow bar in the top right saying animals, that would include the human in this scheme, you'll see that humans have similarities to slime molds or to different types of bacteria. Now, if you take the explanation of humankind as being entirely organic or genetic, then actually that's going to worry you if you also want to retain a position of faith. Because you're actually saying, well, if that's the case, if I'm so close to these other organisms then how can I say I'm unique? What is it that makes me different? But it's good that we've got Sam's parents with us, if you recognise good German engineering. There are many models. They're all Mercedes. But it doesn't mean that because they're related to one another that they are one another or that somehow a minibus can turn into a saloon car. And actually, that's a key point. So yes, there are similarities in the way things are made, the way they're alive. But what makes us unique is what the psalmist recognised, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And if we begin to think that doesn't matter, or we compromise on that, or we don't have that underpinning our thinking, if we think we can explain everything rationally within the framework of science, we're doomed to failure. Because science cannot even entertain that concept of God, because he's outside of it, it's in his creation. Which takes us then to this idea, so is our behaviour pre-programmed? And there is a purpose to this, I hope, in terms of going where salt and light is. We know that cats aren't keen on swimming. That's not because they had a bad experience as a kitten. It's because genetically, they just don't tend to like water. Apart from tigers, which are very big cats, they do like water. But actually, there's a genetic programming that says, as a cat... I don't like water. Rottweilers have somewhat of a bad reputation. A cross between a Doberman and a Rhodesian Ridgeback. They're big, potentially aggressive and fearsome dogs. In part, genetic. But then we know that actually a badly trained dog behaves very differently from a well-trained dog. But there's a basic propensity for aggression and courage. But then if we look at athletic prowess, I could have put 61-21, but I didn't. We, we look at athletic prowess, and we know that's genetic, but also we know that that team that trains and works and really seeks to perform will perform. So there's this mix of genetic predisposition, but training. Alcoholism has very powerful genetic drivers. Some people are much more likely to become alcoholic 
not because of life circumstances, but because of their genes. Heart disease, depression, and even sexuality has very strong genetic predisposition. It's organic, it's natural, it's not perverse in the sense of having any moral impact. It's just the way things are. And even violence has genetic linkage. Now that's quite important because we tend sometimes from a church position to take a very moral view, right or wrong, and that's of course a helpful thing to do, but actually to understand the finesse of what that is about, it's not that everyone has the same open chance to say right or wrong, yes or no, I'll do it, I'll not do it. Some people have a tendency towards different behavioral traits. And that's a fact. That's what our genes make us do. But it's not just our genes. It's actually our environment too. It's our nurture. So it's nature, the genes meeting nurture together. But crucial to this, I think, as Christians, is that genetically determined does not make it right, but does not make it wrong. It's simply the way we are. And that's hugely important. But to accept that, that people have certain weaknesses or tendencies or preferences is entirely natural. But it is not then equivalent. It is not equivalent to saying it's right or wrong. The Bible is pretty clear. All have sinned and fallen short. Each one of us, in different ways perhaps, but each one of us falls short of the perfect standard that God created us to have. And he created us to praise him, to enjoy him forever. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all men because all have sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. And there's a clue there to something else, that the world, creation, is also fallen. So we shouldn't be saying genes right or wrong, moral, immoral, because actually creation is fallen. That's what we know from scripture. We are looking at a flawed world and we have to keep that. So many behavioral traits can be partially explained by the way we're made up, by our genes, by the sentences, by the chapters, by the story organically we tell. But we are influenced by our surroundings. But we have to add to that that we have a spiritual purpose. That is what we were created. And I can't explain that to you, and no one can, on the basis of the genes, of the sentences, of those words. That is simply what puts us together, the dust. But God's spirit is something quite apart, and being made in his image is something quite apart. So what am I if I'm more than genes? We're in the image of God. God created them in his own image, man, woman, male, and female. God spoke these words, you shall have no other gods before me. And in Leviticus 19, verse 2, I think, he says, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. We're set apart. And as Christians, we actually need to be confident that that cannot be explained in words of rationality or science. It's just the way it is because God revealed himself to us. That's our testimony in the world. So that takes us on to the second question. Being human is being in God's image. 
we are not autonomous. And we'll deal with it briefly, but we can talk about it if we have time at the end. We knew that we have a perfect example. We knew that we have a perfect example who showed that greater love has no one than he would lay down his life for his friends. More than that, Jesus laid down his life for those who called themselves his enemies. But we're not autonomous because independent of our genetic traits, we actually still have an accountability to God. And when we go into the world, we have to be aware of that. We have an accountability, so do others. Just as each of us has one body with many members, not all the same functions, so in Christ, we who are many form one body and each member belongs to the others. Different gifts according to the grace given to us. It's a huge part of scripture and I think a huge part of creation, not just the humankind, that we live in community. And actually that community we to some extent define for ourselves. Very often in an evangelical church we define community of what happens within these walls when we come in, when we close the door during the second hymn and then we get on with it before we go back out into the world. We define community the way we want it to be. But actually, the community talked about in Romans is perhaps something much more open because as the writer goes on and talks about gifts, remember how it ends? Practice hospitality. That least of all, and yet that greatest of all, gifts. To make yourself available to others to be part of community. So let's look at an example, perhaps, where we can apply that idea of autonomy and community. If you look at Stonewall, Stonewall Scotland on the right, it has a number of objectives. And Stonewall started in response to what it saw as the persecution of same-sex relationships. It sets out to empower individuals, to transform institutions, to change hearts and minds, and to change laws which is not a bad declaration for a statement of faith for a place like our church. The only bit that's missing is for whom and why. But that's Stonewall. Why did it do that? Well, actually, it arose because of what it saw as discrimination. And it's undoubtedly true, if you look through church history, that the church, in its various forms, has discriminated against people who have either chosen a same-sex relationship or who have struggled with their identity, the church is guilty of often treating those people with disdain. But they take a perspective that society is pluralistic. Anything goes. Live and let live. Autonomy is a right, and that's a key part of equalities legislation. You have the right to be autonomous. Tell that to a two-month-year-old baby. Tell that to somebody who's 86 and suffering end-stage dementia. It's nonsense. We are not autonomous. We are created to be in community. We need to live in community. And yet autonomy is seen as a basic human right. That has to be nonsensical. But if we believe it, why on earth should we have any reference to God who says, not only do you need me, but I want you to live the way I want you to be, not the way you choose. There are no absolutes. There's a pressure to conform. And increasingly, 
of course, the pressure is not just to allow, but it's actually that we must endorse and support. So the pressure from the outsider has now become the inside pressure, and we have become, if you will, the outsider. So there's a huge challenge facing the church. You wonder sometimes if the church is in disarray. So you have St. Mary's Episcopal Cathedral in Glasgow saying, we welcome everyone. We've been bad in the past. We've discriminated. Everyone come in. It doesn't matter what community you are, LBGT, whatever. Come in, welcome, inclusive. Versus a church that splits and goes through a fairly painful process because they say, no, no, we cannot go this step in terms of accepting homosexuality. The church isn't at all clear. And it may be that people here have a very clear view of what they think. It may be others actually are much less decided. How do we make these decisions? And I'm not here in a sense to tell you what I think that answer should be, but it's perhaps to think about it in a God-centered rather than a human-centered way. So, in our metrosexual era, there's a thing called in sociology called queer theory, but this whole genderbred is actually part of the metrosexual age. So this isn't meant to be funny. This is exactly. Christians get somewhat preoccupied by the bottom right-hand corner of homosexuality in the church. You're probably very well aware of how much more talk there is recently about transgender issues. And people who wrestle with their agenda, their transgender identity, in large part because of genetics, but also because of nurture, are amongst the most unhappy people in society. They have a higher suicide rate than drug addicts. They feel excluded. They feel unloved. They feel completely trapped. So I'm not trying to say that makes it all right. What I'm saying is sexuality has become an awful lot more complicated because people are talking about it. So you have your gender identity, what you think. You have your gender expression, whether you dress masculine or feminine or somewhere in between. You have your biological sex. And most people have either a male or a female biological sex, but actually not everyone. And you have your sexual orientation, which might have a genetic predisposition but could also be your choice. That is actually the sexual revolution that the church faces. Not whether or not we should have gay members or gay ministers or whatever. It's this complexity. It's the gender-bred person versus the person created in God's image, fearfully and wonderfully made. It's a breakdown And that's crucial. So what is the biblical perspective on sexuality? We are created to have a relationship with God. Creation has been distorted. All relationships are broken and confused and complicated. And God loves us and wants to rescue us, even though we're rebellious, broken and hurting. And nowhere have I talked about transgender or homosexuality or anything else, not because it's not important, but because I think as Christians we've got to say, that's the way I want to go into the world and that's the way I want to interact with people who may be wrestling for all sorts of reasons with these issues or who basically just say, no, 
I'm not interested in your God talk. I think everyone should do as they wish. Those are the principles. We are created to have a relationship with God. But the relationship is broken. All our relationships, therefore, are broken. How do you get it right? Well, it's unlikely by picking in the bottom right-hand corner and making an issue of it. It's got to be, as Ezekiel has the words, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. There is no substitute for taking a moral position than to point people to the need for salvation. And that's not to judge. It may not even be to say they're wrong. It's actually simply to say we are all subject to broken relationships. Last time I spoke, we talked about Corinthians 5 briefly, and it had sex, incest as a particular highlight sin as an example, but then talked about the idolater, the swindler, the drunkard, all of these other things. What do they all do? They're all about taking advantage of other people. They're all about broken relationships, confused relationships, complicated relationships. And the Bible says, I'll put my spirit in you so that you'll obey my decrees. Not, when you obey my decrees, I'll put my spirit in you. And that's perhaps a very crucial difference. Which takes us on, finally, to what I've called meeting on common ground. What do I mean by that? Well, actually, there's a problem. And if we just stick with that example of sexuality for a minute, we have the problem, perhaps in many churches, where we can either be all-embracing and say, look, everyone come in. It's fine. We're, we're in different times. We're open, dead, We're tolerant. We accept. Or we can be fearful of what that might mean for us. So we actually have this idea that there's a church community and then there's the rest of society. And if the rest of society comes in on us, then we feel somewhat threatened by that because that's kind of like we're accepting things that we don't really accept. But equally, how would we go into society without standing up for what we believe to be right? So we actually have this kind of dichotomy because we don't know whether we should stay here and hope people come in, but hope they come in and they basically agree with us before they come in because otherwise it's going to be really awkward, or whether we go out there and we tell them they're wrong and think, but that's not going to get us very far. And I think in many ways the church is troubled by this, and I think particularly younger people who have grown up in, in a much more permissive era, particularly around sexuality, saying, What's the issue here? I mean, what's the problem? Why don't we just live and let live? Why don't we get on with it? Because to some extent, we've missed the underlying purpose that being in the image of God is to have his image in us, his spirit in us, and as we have his spirit in us, wanting to keep his decrees. So we have a dichotomy. You may not want to be like the Westboro Baptist Church, a cult, a sect, in the United States, it spends something like half a million dollars a year turning up to funerals of homosexuals or uh, servicemen that have been killed in war. And they say, Fags dooms nations. God is America's terror. Repent or perish. God hates trannies. God hates fags. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, gave his only son, who died so that no one would have to perish. And I'm trusting 
I think it's unlikely that anyone here today would actually say that. And yet, what do you do instead if you actually think this is wrong, this is not God's pattern for living? We wouldn't like that. We wouldn't like the words, but what do you do instead? There's a challenge. Well, this is one way, perhaps, and it's something to think about. We actually have to break the dichotomy. We won't accept people coming in who are different and out of place into a conventional worship service because they won't fit. They won't accept what we're doing. We may not like the way they do it. Equally, if we go out into the world and we're Westboro Baptist church-like and we're saying God hates you, one, it's theologically incorrect. Oh, that's the one bit of theology. That's, uh, it's, it's wrong. But actually, what is the interim? And actually, the interim may be some of these things. So it may be the fruit farm work. We're not going in necessarily to preach the gospel, but we are going out in the name of Christ to be in his image in that situation. It may be that if you're a student, you're chasing toasties around the streets of St. Andrews on a Friday night, providing toasties for people who are often the worst for wear, coming into this building to have somewhere to sit, a friendly face, perhaps reaching more non-Christians than most of the rest of activity in this town put together. It may be pilgrim care, meeting needs of elderly population. It may be what we haven't got here, street pastors going out, looking for those who are cold, those who are the worst for there, worst for wear, just speaking to people in their upset being near to them. Why does that matter? Because we're going out to meet perceived needs. We're not going out with our agenda. We're going out to meet perceived needs. It's like turning up to the well and being asked for water and then challenged and said, well, would you like water? That means you'll never have to come back here again. Meet perceived needs and raise questions in people's minds by what we do, by how we live. And as people see us meet the perceived need, we raise questions and then in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do it with gentleness and respect. We have to understand that we are in the image of God. That's not scientific. It's so much more. We have to understand that we're not autonomous. We are a community. We're dependent on God. We're dependent on one another. But I also think we've got to go and meet needs where people think they have needs. Heal them, the ten lepers, but only one returns. But that one returned, asked the question, having got over his perceived need, he understood what his real need was. And as a church, to be confident, we have to think, yes, to meet our perceived needs, or to meet the perceived needs of those around about is hugely important. But in doing that, and why we're doing it, is because we know that people then say, why? And then we will have an answer for that hope that is within us. And that, I believe, allows what we do, no matter how small, no matter how trivial, no matter how small and insignificant the act of goodness appears, that will be the salt and light that will show the good works that will demonstrate our Father's love. There's no doubt that the harvest fields are white. But to do that, we're going to have to go out and harvest and I think that is the challenge for us.
बैठा say overall is that I mean there are some incredibly complex issues around morally in terms of medicine in terms of our understanding of humanity and for many people who are not Christians the narrative is totally focused on things like genetics and how you define yourself through genetics etc as you were saying and, and you're saying, well, actually, as Christians, there's, a, there's another narrative. And this other narrative gives us a very different understanding of who we are. So that's what you're saying, I think. And then you're saying, and the way all that begins is at a very practical, simple level, which is loving people, serving people, meeting them where they are. How do you get from that to helping re-narrate for total non-Christians the things that you were putting up in terms of what we understand to be defining truths? Do, do you understand my question? I, I mean, I can, I can see all that, but I think the move from offering a toasty to somebody who's drunk and they're going, whoa, why do you do that? to actually redefining them in terms of we're made in the image of God, we are relational people, we are not autonomous, we are loved by God and worthy because of him. So there's a massive yeah. jump there. Yeah, indeed. And so, uh, from your own experience, perhaps you could just talk about how you've, in the world of science, moved people, helped people to move from one to the other. So I think it's very important to say what I'm suggesting is not how I think evangelism should be done because this is not to take away from the need to preach the gospel and for that to be clearly heard. I'm talking specific within this context of salt and light doing good works so that people glorify God. So I think that's important. I'm not saying let's stop preaching the gospel. That's very important that I say that. I mean, I, th I think of an example in St. Andrew's a few years ago was Matthew Hastings who was a student and he kind of lost his way as a student and he came to Toasty Bar and thought I've really messed up, there must be more to it and he asked the question and there were people there downstairs who actually took time and over a period of time Matthew's confusion sense of lostness began to focus and eventually of course he came to be baptised upstairs so there's no formula and there's no route. 
I look at examples in scripture of 10 lepers coming to Jesus and one who was a Samaritan who I guess didn't really have an option to go to the temple anyway, thought, well, what will I do? He goes back to Jesus. And because of that, he discovers something more about Jesus because he asked the question. Or the woman at the, the well in Samaria, she was there, Jesus asked for water, perceived needs met, and then the conversation somehow moves on. So I think, in part, it's about Christians being aware that actually when they're having that interaction, there's that desire to see broken lives, sinful lives, if you will, one for Christ, to see salvation, to see repentance. So there's a desire on the part of the Christian, but actually I think it's often part of God's work. So there was an example, I mean, you asked for an example, I think I said this one Sunday morning, as a, an undergraduate student at a, a typical, I think it was a halfway through the term, a typical drunken student party in a hall of residence, I spoke to a student who was doing engineering, uh, quite upset, he was going to give up because he'd always wanted to do medicine, he hadn't got the grades that time to get in, really messed up, he wasn't really terribly compass and I said, look, I really feel for you, all I can say is I'll pray for you. And he left. You think, well, what good did I do then? I met him, I think, four, five, four years later at a conference of international Christian medical students where he'd become a Christian. He'd come to St. Andrews. He can't have everything. He'd done medicine. And there he was at a Christian conference. And I'm not saying that what I did meant anything, but that tiny little bit of kindness maybe was something to say, well, actually, maybe there is another way. Maybe there is something else that can happen. So I think it's often having the humility to realize that the tiniest little things we can do actually might be just that step to nudge somebody in a particular direction. So I don't think it's a complete answer because I'm not selling it as a formula, but I would then say, well, what's the alternative? Because if we just go out and we preach, 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 we get perhaps one chance before people are immunized against the message. I'm not saying we don't preach, but there's that danger. If that's all we have to offer, it's very easy for people to walk away. If we're in their face with kindness, if we're in their face meeting their perceived needs, it's much more difficult not for them not to ask the question, why are you doing this? Why are you here? Why are you still here? So it's actually just, if you like, picking the scab of sin in the world, never letting go, never giving up on people. You talked early on about creation being fallen. Um, are our genes fallen? Is there any, or is there any way we can say at any time our genes are diseased and need to be cured or repaired? Uh, the easy answer is no, they're not, because they're just words, sentences. 
I mean, the gene that makes me more susceptible to developing a melanoma in the sunlight is the same gene that enables me to make more vitamin D because I live in Scotland where there is no sunlight. So is it therefore moral or not? Well, it's not. It's actually what suits the kind of environment where I am. So I don't think genes of themselves are fallen or not. And we're all aware of people who are very sensitive. They may be male, but they may have very, if you like, feminine intuition and the ability to get alongside people. We don't think that's wrong. We don't think that's deviant. We think that's part of the rich tapestry of creation. We're all created differently. So I don't think genes are right or wrong. Some are clearly wrong, cause disease, sickle cell disease. But sickle cell disease probably helps protect you against malaria. So, hmm, it's a tricky one. So I don't think genes of themselves have rightness or wrongness. Some are more suited to your surroundings, your environment, than others. David, I was intrigued by your comment that you thought that if we go out and meet people and bring them to the church, that they would just instantly not understand what we're doing and leave. And that's when you then decide, you know, you went on to say it's really more imperative that we go out and meet them on their turf. So I was just wondering whether, have you succumbed to the idea that church culture is deterministic and unable to change in order to meet the needs of those who come in from the streets if they do? Again, I've dealt with a very specific question, so I'm not against people being brought into church and hearing the word because God uses that too, so I'm absolutely not saying that. But I think there is sometimes this tendency that the church is actually, it's a subculture. And because we are no longer accepted in the way that once we were in society, it is a subculture that is effectively created by Christians for Christians, and each church will have its own personality and distinctive style. So I think there is a risk sometimes that when we want people to come to church, what we mean is we want them to come something that we are comfortable with, rather than, if you like, being exposed to the raw gospel. But I'm not against bringing people to church, and I'm certainly not against people hearing the message, because I think there are all sorts of different ways people will hear about God and about that call to repentance and salvation. So not for a minute am I saying stop inviting people to church, but I think as a church we've sometimes got to ask ourselves, well we don't actually have to be within the walls, there may be things that we do and support people out with. The fruit farm's a great example, you know, if the focus there is helping people, one, feel loved and cared for, perhaps helping them with English, we're hoping they're going to come back as we meet their perceived need and say, tell us why. But we'll provide that because there'll be some sort of worship service on site. So I don't think it's an either-or. I think it should be a mixed economy. But I think there is a danger that the church, to some extent, has defined itself what it's comfortable with, and then assuming that that is orthodoxy, and therefore people coming in should be comfortable in that orthodoxy. The response of some churches is, well, you know, let's welcome LGBT and have their annual meeting in our church. And I think that's actually equally flawed, because then you're not raising any questions. Thank you. Okay, well, 
Well, I think we'll draw to a close. Can I, on your behalf, say a big thank you to David again? Thank you.